Today is Monday, May 2nd, 2022. That's right. It is already May. We've hit a new month. Summer is just around the corner. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast, and I am your host, Kevin McDonald. I'm an executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. We hope you had a terrific weekend and are ready to hit the new style, the new month in style, in like a lion, right? That's what they say about May. And we've got a lot of great stuff to bring to you here in this episode, and we encourage you to listen back to past episodes. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, so your inbox, so to speak, will be full with the latest episodes when we release them. All right, up first is conversation with our most recent line opinion panel. That is former state Senator Dee Dee Feldman and another former state Senator Diane Snyder, along with Ed Perea, an attorney and public safety consultant. And uh, in this conversation, breaking down the race for attorney general here in New Mexico, uh, a hotly contested primary race on the Democratic side of things features some prominent names and some uh, real scrutiny of late in terms of campaign fundraising, namely uh, whether or not current state auditor Brian Colon should be uh, taking campaign contributions from out-of-state law firms. This is not a new practice. Our current AG, Hector Balderas, has done this, as has some of the predecessors, but it raises questions about whether or not this is a pay-to-play type of a system because a lot of these out-of-state companies end up uh, getting contract work from the state. A recent example of that was a uh, lawsuit around Vivint Solar, which ended in a settlement, which as you will hear Diane Snyder talk about, didn't actually benefit any specific New Mexicans. That settlement, nobody uh, saw any of that money uh, directly in terms of the customers. Uh, And so uh, this is a question that is on the top of many people's minds. Um, And of course, Cologne is running against Bernalillo County DA Raul Torres in the primary uh, election, and uh, and so we wanted to just get their thoughts and opinions on this practice. We'd love to know what you think about this as well. Again, nothing illegal about this, but is this a good look for these candidates as we head into the primary election? So here now is host Gene Grant with our line opinion panel. Welcome back to the line opinion panelists. Looking ahead to the June primary, the race for the Republican nomination for governor is taking a lot of the headlines right now, but a recent campaign finance report is raising questions in the Democratic race for attorney general as well. State Auditor Brian Colon has received more than $150,000 from out-of-state law firms supporting his campaign. There's speculation these donations could lead to state contracts on big cases if Mr. Colon were to be elected. Now, Senator Snyder, let me start with you on this. Should this be concerning to voters? Is this a little bit of an inside political baseball? Or how big is this in your view? I think for most voters, they weren't even aware that 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 was going on. I think that most people's immediate reaction is what? Mm -hmm. You're taking campaign contributions from the people that you're then awarding contracts to? Uh, But in reading about this, I guess we've been doing it for quite some time. And uh, I 
I don't know that certainly don't advocate that just because we've been doing it, it makes it legitimate. Mm -hmm. But I looked up, I did a little research and the Centers for Public Integrity had a list. Unfortunately, the report was from 2016. So I don't know if New Mexico has changed any laws or not. Maybe y'all can help me with that. But there were only uh, 15 states that had any restrictions like that on attorney general race, any kind of restrictions of any kind, attorney general races. New Mexico was one of them. But when you re read on into it, you found that it's perfectly acceptable for them to accept contributions while they're running, before it, when they're elected, the only, and then after a contract has been awarded, the only restriction is they may not accept contributions during the negotiation of a contract. Hmm. Well, if you've already if you've already been given the money up front, right? That that little caveat is is worth nothing in my opinion. And I there's a part of me that goes, I understand when when they say they're trying to save money by combining with other states and doing and you end up with a I I know I believe it was. Uh, New York City, Washington, D.C. seem to be the basis for most of the out-of-state big law firms that New Mexico has contracted with. Have you noticed that? Uh, That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It really is these big uh, New York and D.C. firms. Oh, like, okay. And I thought it was interesting right. that one candidate, Mr. Colleen, has accepted a number of contributions from people who have contracts currently or in the past. And uh, Mr. Bruce has not but he's accepted it from local firms. Right. Well, I'm not sure what that says either. Just, but let me let me, let me ask Senator Feldman that very question. Yeah. I appreciate that point that um, Mr. Torres, the other Democratic candidate in that AG's race, has not taken any major donations from out of state, but 32,000 from in-state. Do you cut a difference there between in-state and out-of-state for these kind of donations? Not really. Yeah. Not really. I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is part of a bigger problem. The problem of a conflict of interest and the problem of quid pro quo, uh, making a contribution and then getting a contract. We do have only, we have very few laws that cover this. Mm -hmm. And because it looks almost like legalized bribery, you know? Right. Uh, and uh, we do have one law. Uh, that I was involved with, and that is at least the at least the people that are bidding on the contracts have to disclose that they've made a campaign contribution mm -hmm. to the attorney general. That's you know I thought that was the least they could do. Sure, um, <laughs> kind of but you know, but but Diane's right. I mean, this is a time honored practice that goes back to to Patricia Madrid, to Udall, to uh, everyone, and the and what the attorney generals say is that unless they have the top-notch lawyers, uh, the trial lawyers from out of state who are, uh, who are expert at taking on big pharma, taking on the tobacco That's industry, right. uh, we're, not, we, we're little New Mexico. We're not, going to, we're not going to get very far when it comes to protecting consumers. And so um, this has been the, the reason in the past um, and it's it's somewhat valid. I think the whole thing would be um, would be settled if if attorney generals like our judges were able to participate in a public financing ah. uh, program where Maybe. they didn't have to worry about being beholden 
to their contributors. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's, that's another solution. That's interesting. Ed, let me read you a quote here from fellow you guys know, Damon Ely, um, Democratic State Senator, Senator from, uh, State Representative, excuse me, from Corrales. His problem with this is, uh, quote, he said the extensive use of outside lawyers has eroded legal expertise within the AG's office. And the second point I wanted you, to, to, you guys to touch, he says outside firms have an incentive to settle a case quickly in order to get paid quickly. I, there's something about that just seems like such a dead end, Ed. I just, I don't get it. Let's talk about the idea of the, of the it erodes expertise in the AG's office. Do you agree with that? I mean, clearly, I think that's one of the reasons that was stated for going externally is right. because that's we right. lack the expertise here. So it's you know you get you know you you lose your your expertise by not giving locals the opportunity to acquire that expertise. Yep. And so, um, so yeah, I mean that's and that's, and that's, to interrupt and to make the big dough. Do you know what I mean? Because right. <laughs> it's all going to Dallas and Chicago and New York at this point. So you know. And Gene, that goes to your second point. What yeah. are the motivations? You're right. I mean, if if you're local, you may have more local motivations in the interest of your of your community. But if you're a New York firm or a LA firm, well, it's about the bottom line. It's how do you make the, right. the, the quickest buck for your firm? Mm -hmm. And in all cases, most cases go to some sort of settlement phase. And, and a lot of times that's the quickest way to get in, get out for, for, your, for the maximum uh, benefit. And so, yeah, I, I think those are, 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 are two valid uh, concerns mm -hmm. that were made. But Gene, this is a sign of the times. This is, this is the way politics are done that's these right. days. Under uh, Citizens United, the United States Supreme Court decision, of 2010, it really opened up the avenues of contributions, especially with multi-national uh, corporations. I mean, we are seeing more and more of that, but it's not a local problem, it's a national problem because it's allowed. And so the question really is, do we want to play by the rules and, and, and use the rules to our advantage, or do we look at this from another another angle? And right now, all appearances are that, uh, that, that the current uh, state auditor, Mr. Colon, is playing by the rules mm -hmm. uh, and, and the other side is saying, well, you know, maybe or maybe not. I'm not sure what their what their reasoning for not getting out of state contributions are. But uh, in, in full disclosure here, I was a candidate for the DA's office in 2016. Mm -hmm. and I my campaign was outspent eight to one by mm -hmm. by my opponent, Mr. Torres, and who received huge funding from from Mr. Soros. And so if you're local, if you're the local candidate and, you, and you're not getting those external right. uh, contributions, you, yeah. you're probably saying, hey, wait, 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 you know, where's the fairness in this? However, if you are getting those, those contributions that are, that are legal under Citizens United, you're saying, hey, I'm playing by the rules. So sometimes it's, it's a, a decision that, that you have to make. That's right. But the Supreme Court has allowed this to happen and until there's a decision to the contrary, mm -hmm. this is the way the political game is being played. Mm -hmm. Senator Snyder, I you have a point? Yep. Yes, actually it's a concern is I was reading and in the one of the most recent, the settlement uh, with the solar company is ah. in the news we hear oh, so-and-so AG and the state of New Mexico won this lawsuit and this amount of money has been given to New Mexico. Well, where does that money go when it gets here? Mm -hmm. And as, as I understand what I've been reading is not a single New Mexican who was involved in the case got any of the money that came in. Right. It was 
It came in, went out to the big company law firms. It went into the state, but the and that they our AG signed an, a non-disclosure agreement that would not tell people what happened and why it happened. Mm -hmm. But they can research. They cannot find a single New Mexican who was involved in the lawsuit getting compensation from the settlement. We're a little short on time. We're going to have to end it there. But that's interesting. And I think that makes the point that Senator Feldman made just a bit ago, perhaps with some reform about how this money is doled out. They don't, we don't have to have our AG folks with hat in hand across state borders. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Thank you once again to our panel. We'll be back in just over 10 minutes to talk about oil and gas leasing opening back up on public lands. Up first, the latest on a settlement regarding pollution at the Fort Wingate Depot. New Mexico Natural Resources Trustee Maggie Hart Stebbins discusses the settlement with environment correspondent Laura Pascas, as well as another potential payout over the Gold King mine spill. And let's stick with the line opinion panel now. We also had a conversation with them. News broke this week that uh, the uh, Bureau of Land Management once again uh, going to be allowing people to apply for leases for oil and gas drilling on public lands. You may remember early in President Biden's administration, he put a moratorium on that. Again, obviously for reasons related to the environment and climate change. Uh, he also, uh, at the time, asked for a review of the policies around all of this. That report is now out. So we'll be talking with the line opinion panel some about what was found in there. Uh, and just the idea there would be several plots basically here in New Mexico where new leases might be issued, and uh, if that's a good thing or not. Also, what this means around the longstanding debate around oil and gas drilling around Chaco Canyon. So, time to dive into here as well. Let's kick it right back over to the Line Opinion Panel and host Gene Grant. Let's welcome our line opinion panelists one final time to talk about oil and gas leasing on public lands opening back up. Leasing public lands for extraction had been put on hold by the Biden administration, but after 13 states filed an injunction to end that moratorium, a judge sided with those states. New Mexico is not part of the complaint, but more than 520 acres in our state are set to be auctioned off. President Biden also directed the Department of the Interior to review the federal oil and gas program. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, with a wide brush, with only 13 states requesting a change, Senator Feldman, is the federal government letting states like New Mexico down here? Well, um, I think so. I think that the, the mm -hmm. pressure to do so was, was tremendous, however. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the... Um, and the court settlement said that uh, you had to open up uh, leasing again. Um, and we, of course, are lucky because we have the caveat that the oil and gas leasing uh, cannot be done within a 10-mile uh, buffer zone surrounding Chaco Canyon. Mm -hmm. But uh, oil, and la oil and gas leasing is resuming, uh, most notably in southeast New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, that doesn't mean that drilling will begin, though. I think that they will, the lands will just be locked up uh, so that drilling can happen when the market favors it. And of course, the market is beginning to favor it. 
Uh, but in the meantime, any conservation efforts, any plans for the, that area will be stymied by the fact that uh, this, this won't, ha won't happen now because the, the land is kind of locked up mm -hmm. uh, for that purpose. So in that sense, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm disappointed uh, that it's resuming, but I certainly understand the pressure uh, to do so. Sure. Just a quick note on where uh, Senator Feldman was talking. Uh, one of the sites in Chavez County between Artesia and Roswell and four sites in Lee County um, further east of the Texas border and 10-year leases will be issued uh, to the bidder. Uh, now, Ed, some of the specifics uh, in that review from the Interior Department, it says the program, quote, fails to provide a fair return to taxpayers, inadequately, inadequately accounts for environmental harms, fosters speculation by oil and gas companies, as we just heard, and leaves communities out of important conversations, end quote. End quote. Despite all that, leasing is back on. At what point should all of this be taken into consideration? Well, the, you know, the moderate view is, and, and I do understand both both sides of this argument on the on the fringes, mm -hmm. is the environmentalists are very very concerned about the environmental damage, uh, the emissions, the our carbon our carbon footprint, and the oil industry is very much concerned about the regulatory issues associated with with drilling, which has caused some of them to stop drilling. Of course, current economic conditions, the need for greater oil production, has created this need for more drilling and so both i guess both sides the issues on both sides need to be need to be looked at but it seems like the middle ground mm -hmm. is let's continue to allow these these leases to take place and the and the option to drill uh but let's take into consideration the needs and the concerns of the environmentalists who have been um, fighting for a reduction of 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 these greenhouse gases and emissions uh, caused by by oil oil use and and, mm -hmm. and drilling, and so yeah, I think they have a valid point that with these uh, with these leases uh, locking up these lands, that those issues of concern are are addressed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're just uh, taking a step back. That's right, Senator Feldman. We got to bring it up. It's our own Secretary of the Interior, New Mexico's own uh, Deb Holland, of course. Uh, she's speaking up on this, too, saying the federal government has overlooked the priorities of tribal communities who, as Ed mentioned, who see the most consequences from pollution. And Ms. Holland has said she's ready to start those conversations about those consequences of drilling. Is she right? Yes, mm -hmm. she is right. And I think there are public hearings that are going to be held uh, around the state mm -hmm. uh, on the conditions under which the leasing will occur. And uh, this report has got a lot of good things in it that will address some of the community concerns mm -hmm. and will also address a very antiquated system in which royalties in New Mexico lagged far behind uh, Texas and other states. So in this resumption of drilling and leasing rather, um, there will be an increase in the royalties paid uh, from 12.5% to 18.75%, uh, which brings us up to other states. Mm -hmm. um, but I think people need to weigh in. They need to read that report um, if they can and testify. I noticed there's one uh, hearing in Farmington, uh, and I assume that there are others around the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, because these are community impacts, um, uh, methane emissions, um, uh, disruption of uh, uh, 
land, the landscape essentially with roads mm -hmm. and um, all kinds uh, and water depletion mm -hmm. uh, that happen uh, around these drilling sites. You know, interesting, uh, kind of chuckling, we mentioned the royalty rates. That rate was set in 1920. I mean, it's yeah. like, how do we get this far to this point? We're just kind of getting to this. Um, Senator uh, Snyder, the Department of Interior, going to stay with uh, that for a second. Uh, going back to the Chaco Canyon point made by Senator Feldman a second ago, uh, they're going to start taking comments about the situation, the proposed withdrawal from Chaco Canyon, protecting some 350,000 350, acres of federal land from future oil and gas leasing for a period of 20 years. I'm interested in the shape of that conversation. It's a, a cherished part of our New Mexico thing. And I know a lot of people are just flat out disgusted. It's even under discussion at all, <laughs> that it just should be just completely off the table. Should Chaco be completely off the table from oil and gas exploration? Personally, yeah. I think that's we should give serious, serious thought to that. Okay. Uh, because it's just like, I, I'm very into looking at uh, old homes and, and particularly those that were built in during Revolutionary War times and, mm -hmm. and before the Civil War, how many are still left? How many have been destroyed? And once you destroy it, you don't get it back. Right. So I think when you're talking about a treasure, and to me, this is not just a New Mexico treasure, this is a natural, national treasure. Uh, fact is international. It, it However, is. I grew up in an oil and gas family, mm -hmm. so I tend to lean toward them and, and have such respect for them. Mm -hmm. The thing that for me that comes to this, and there hasn't been any mention of it that I've seen, is the bigger picture. Look at what Russia is doing uh, to other countries, yes. cutting off their supply. We're in the United States is buying oil from Saudi Arabia. And yet we're stopping the drilling and the purchasing of oil and gas here in our own country. Uh, are, are, is, we a net, are we a net positive exporter of uh, oil at this not, point? No, we're no. not, we were. Okay. And it, the biggest, and the thing that it leads into is that is also holding some countries back a little, increasing their cautiousness because they get their oil and gas, their energy from Russia. Mm -hmm. Germany gets, and Angela Merkel signed, and I remember this discussion, it was a national discussion between her and President Trump, is that they bought all their, their energy from Russia. When your people are, are depending on that, that does color your thinking about taking on the big guy. Um, the second thing is, is we do we produce L, um, LTG, LGN, LG, LNG, which is liquid natural gas, right? And that can be shipped in a. It, we don't have to have a, an underground pipeline. We can ship it in tankers mm -hmm. to the to Europe. The United States could be supplying oil and gas and, and energy to most of Europe at this mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. So. It's not just here in New Mexico. I mean, you look at Louisiana, eastern, western Louisiana has so much oil and gas coming out of there. So we're t when we change what our state's doing or what the federal level is doing, we're impacting the world. That's a good point. Not there. just New Mexico.
I have to say thanks again to our line panel. As always, great subjects, great discussion this week. Now, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics covered on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages. Going to do something a little different now, take a little bit of a turn here. Uh, we are going to head to correspondent Laura Paskus. She, of course, is our R-Land environment correspondent, but not so much an environmental interview here, but interesting all the same. She recently caught up with a reporter at High Country News. His name is Wu Fi Yu, and he is uh, from China and has been uh, basically stationed in his time at High Country News here in New Mexico and has done a lot of really insightful and interesting reporting on Asian-American communities here in New Mexico and their histories. And uh, it's a fascinating story about how we ended up uh, at High Country News and here in New Mexico. And unfortunately, we wish we would have gotten to him earlier because his time here at the High Country News and in America, at least for now, is about up, as you will hear. Uh, it may not be the last time we see him here in New Mexico, but Laura will talk to him about some of what might bring him back to this area. We encourage you to check out his reporting if you haven't already. It really is a fascinating aspect to New Mexico's uh, cultural history and one that a lot of people may not know about. So without further ado, here is Laura Paskus. Good morning, everyone. I'm here with Ufe Yu. Welcome this morning. Thanks for having me. So just as an introduction, um, while a fellow at High Country News, you wrote a lot of great stories. And now as an independent reporter, um, you know, you were writing stories based out of New Mexico about things like the impacts of climate change on hatch green chili, um, chilies up in the space station, tribes using goats for um, fire management. But I want to focus today specifically on some of the stories that you wrote that really highlight the Chinese experience in New Mexico and also across the West. Um, first of all, can you just kind of lay out how you ended up here in New Mexico and reporting for High Country News? Uh, long story short, um, I first, uh, after, like, I was born and raised in Beijing, China, and I studied journalism uh, in grad school in New York. And uh, after that, I got a job at High Country, uh, at Outside Magazine as, uh, as a fellow, and that's how I you know, got into New Mexico, which was totally unexpected when I hop on that flight from uh, Beijing to New York. Um, and that was like three years ago, 2019, summer of 2019. And I've been in New Mexico um, since because I feel like um, the landscape and the history and the cultures around just uh, fascinates me. And uh, I think I joined High Country News at the beginning of uh, 2021. And uh, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> and so you were here through the pandemic, which was unfortunate because you kind of missed out on some experiences. And I definitely missed out on actually getting to meet you in person while you were here. We had to meet in Texas at an SJ conference. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely like a, a pity of it. And, but I have to say like New Mexico is one of the best 
places to, you know, stay social distancing and, you know, because I don't think the virus is going to find you in the wilderness, right? Exactly. So I wanted to start with your most recent story for High Country News, how a California archive reconnected to a New Mexico family with its Chinese roots. And we'll have links to all of these stories in the comments. Can you kind of lay out for me who was the New Mexico family you were writing about and how was that immigrant experience shaped in New Mexico? Um, the family I was writing about is like the Tang slash Ong or, or slash Dang family. You might be confused about all this, but these three pronunciation all points to like the same Chinese character. That's their family name. Um, yeah, and there's still a lot of Tangs, a lot of Ongs in, in New Mexico, even, even till today, especially in Albuquerque. Uh, that family, according to the family um, history, uh, according to the family oral history, they came to um, New Mexico uh, over a hundred years ago. Like, I guess around the time when New Mexico assumed statehood, um, at around that time they arrived, um, and a lot of them are like you know fourth generation or fifth generation uh, Chinese New Mexican. I would like to say, and uh, that was the family I was I was focusing on. I was writing about. I didn't notice there was like this huge story, but in the reporting that I was doing on the on the deeds in New Mexico, like one of those families suddenly started to tell me, like um, one of my sources started to tell me about her willingness to know more about. Uh, her family history, her as like a Chinese New Mexico, fourth generation Chinese New Mexican, asking like a new Chinese immigrant who's pretty new to the United States and to New Mexico, asked me, you know, if I'm pretty confused about a lot of things. If you could kind of help me out here, I was like, I can try. And I tried. <laughs> and that was <laughs> the end. Like that story was basically what came out of it. Speaking of that Chinese immigration, New Mexico, I didn't feel like a lot of, uh, I definitely don't feel like a lot of New Mexico, uh, New Mexicans actually know about that part of history. And I guess recently, because of, you know, community historians, or like people who care about that history started to um, kind of emphasize that a lot more, especially like in 2016, New Mexico, I, I guess around second and silver, they finally put up like a pretty humble uh, plaque uh, commemorating the Chinese, uh, ch they're basically commemorating there was like a vibrant Chinese community over there a um, hundred something years ago. And sadly it disappeared for a lot of reasons. Um, so I feel like a lot of the communities have been definitely like intricated part of New Mexico or of Albuquerque in many, many ways, yet I guess in a lot of the times, politicians or, you know, official narratives often focus on like the tri-cultural myth, I like to say, focusing on like the Native American, Anglo and Hispanic impact on the, on the land. But, I, but in a lot of ways, it's definitely multicultural than tri-cultural. Um, that's kind of like my feeling about it, about the immigrate, immigration impact on New Mexico. 
Yeah, I always, there is that um, tendency to talk about New Mexico as a tricultural state, which is, you know, kind of strange to begin with, considering there's more than 20 different tribes in New Mexico. Um, but I, I'm really interested because you, you write in that story about Albuquerque's Chinatown and, you know, kind of write about how, although Chinese residents weren't allowed to own the land, their businesses operated on the names of Chinese businesses appeared on the maps of Albuquerque in the 1920s. And it, it, it's like this sense of erasure in so many ways. And I'm curious really how much that feels like it's changed because in that same story, you also write, you know, how you felt lonely and out of place here in Albuquerque. So I'm curious kind of what you think has changed and what hasn't changed over time. Um, I think what changed in a good way is like people are starting to recognize that lawmakers, uh, the, the group of lawmakers are becoming more diverse and I'd say like across the whatever ethnic ethnic group, it, they, they start to recognize that New Mexico is not just uh, not just Anglo, not just Hispanic, not just Native Americans. There are a lot of black and Asian experience here in in New Mexico and in, in Albuquerque for sure. Um, I feel like that's getting a little bit more um, attention. If you talk to the state, historian, I guess he will tell you that New Mexico is definitely like multicultural. And there is like a, you know, a lot of things that we have to make like historic reconciliation with. Um, yeah, that's what I've heard around, uh, you know, um, from a lot of the state officials and from people of those communities. That's what they were telling me. They feel like it's in a good direction, but, you know, people could definitely do more. I mean, um, people could <laughs> definitely do more. I mean, like the, the language access bill, bill is like a huge thing that's been, you know, that's been a focus of some Asian American community activists for a long time. And finally, they just, they, they got it. I feel like, is that in the past legislative session or, or somewhere around that, um, which is definitely like a good, a, a big step. But in a lot of ways, like, I feel like people should and need to learn about histories um, of uh, these marginalized groups in a lot of ways because it really bake into people's experience um, you know especially like Chinese immigrants Chinese Americans being constantly painted as like foreigners not belonging to here I mean like I've I mean I personally had pretty like I, I would say harsh experiences while reporting on the ground when some racists just pop into your pop 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 right in front of you and saying that you know you you guys all look like this you know pulling the eyes and stuff like that it's definitely like definitely feels um feels uh unsafe and harmful in many ways and when people were just uh you know, some hate mails popping into your DM, popping into your email, you, you see that? And, you know, being, being you know, perceived, be, be, being seen as, you know, uh, because of, you know, the way they talk, the shape of their eyes or their so-called perceived country of origin is definitely putting like extra pressure 
on a lot of people and that's still happening. I see that, I see my sources experience that, they tell me that, I myself experience that because of, I guess, in, out, out there in the news outlets, national, tribal, local, regional, there's still a lot more about covering some of these communities that they can do much better instead of just saying that, oh, they are foreigners or whatever. They're not foreigners, they belong here, right? Yeah, I'm curious, you know, you, you, your reporting I felt was so important and I really, I learned so much about so many different things in New Mexico. I'm, I'm curious, you know, who were some of the other people you met along the way, either that you wrote about or, or who you just met? Um, like I'm thinking of a Q&A that you did. Um, <laughs> with Kay, with Kay Bangkwa? Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, she almost become my, my state house representative. You know, I, we missed out each other by a few blocks. <laughs> Anyways, um, I feel like she is definitely somebody, you know, we're like steering in like the um, conservation world and try to get like, um, try to kind of rebuild um, some marginalized communities to the land after, I guess, decades or a century of removing them from the land and removing their contribution to the land and try to reconnect those groups with the land. And I really like admire the work that she's been doing. I feel like it's because of her work people see more like, you know, um, black, Asian, Latino faces like in like uh, involved in community uh, conservation work in New Mexico. And I think that's, uh, that's very important. And uh, she, I think she is, uh, she definitely had her own like immigrant experience and her own connection to, to the landscape in New Mexico. And I remember she was telling me that uh, in the Sandia Mountains, she felt she felt safe to you know basically escape from that historic you know uh, Anglo white neighborhood that her family were living in. Her family were, were originally from Southeast Asia as like refugees, and at first their family were were trying you know were trying to move into that neighborhood, and the neighbor the neighbors just kind of thought it was to totally okay to petition, sign letters to try to kick that family out because they thought that, you know, the family would bring like crimes or devalue their real estate, which were like total bullshit, <laughs> I have to say. And, uh, and they thought it's totally okay to do that. It is not okay to do that. And I remember she was telling me that, you know, she hiked in the Sandias, she biked in the Sandias with her family, speak the language, speak Mandarin, speak like, um, you know, just be themselves in the mountains and to seek like some sanctuary and to fend off what they've experienced in their neighborhood is, is just fascinating. And it's definitely like sad to hear in a lot of ways. And because I feel like it, it is their connection to the landscape. And a lot of the community's connection to the landscape is being overlooked 
over like the past century and people are still fine uh, and re rebuilding that connection is 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 not easy but i've definitely seen like baby steps that a lot of the groups like the wilderness society is taking in new mexico and which is definitely like positive to see that um that q a with Kay, she's the new mexico director of the wilderness society we'll put that link in the comments it's really um it's really interesting and she she talks about acknowledging the deep trauma done to communities while lifting up solutions found within those communities and um i just yeah that that q a is really her story is really so powerful so we'll, we'll put that so that people can find that or, or read it again you also you know talking about case family and the 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 racism and you know the the violence that people feel you wrote about albuquerque's racist history in terms of its housing market a few years ago can you kind of refresh our memory on that story and what you learned and maybe also you know what's happened since you reported that um all right i think um the story is basically about um some of the very offensive uh d languages are still appearing in these in like real estate transactions and you know a lot of people are still seeing like you know people of uh, african and asian descent couldn't live here um unless you are a slave couldn't rent it un unless you're a, you're a slave or languages like that you know, it is not enforceable, but when people see that, they were always like, oh, I always know like New Mexico as like this so uh, welcoming city because of, you know, tricultural myth or whatever, right? <laughs> and, but, you know, these languages definitely reflects first um, a very sad history that, no, that not a lot of people wants to talk about. I definitely remember like KRQE did like a very great investigative report on that historic aspect. But second, for a lot of the, the communities, these are like still like their daily lives. They're still feeling it from time to time, especially like during the pandemic, people are telling me that, oh, some we, we used to live in like historic white neighborhood and we were being discriminated against and the pandemic happened, we are being, call like to go back to our country, go back to go back to your country, go back to China or or whatever. And that just baffled me. And when you talk to like community members in like the African American, Asian American community, um, they would tell you that thing is not historic. It's still like we feel that from day to day. And you know, a lot of the politicians were like, you know, we we really wanted it out. And I definitely totally under understand that. Um, I think since I reported that story, a lot of community members, you know, uh, they were trying to get that language removed. And I definitely, I remember I was talking to two like state representatives and they were telling me that they found a way to do that. And they, they, they told me that, you know, it, it but, I guess in 2021, it was not, um, it was not like in like the, the legislative session, they weren't able to do something. I, I don't think 
2022 is different. I tried to follow up with one of the state representatives, didn't hear back from him, unfortunately. Um, and But like, I definitely feel like people are still caring about this. They, people were asking me like, oh, we didn't know that happened. And, uh, and, uh, and how we could do something about it. But I guess if the state representatives keep saying that it's not up to their priorities, or like they have like bigger fishes to fry, I guess this thing would be keep kicking down the role. A lot of the neighborhood associations express that, you know, if that's in our language, if that's in our covenants, the languages, they want to try to remove it somehow. And yeah, that is probably like the, the most up-to-date that I, I followed. Um, but if you guys hear something different, definitely let me know. <laughs> well, so I really feel like as a reader, so I am a, an avid high country news reader, um, your reporting really represents to me the best of what reporting can be. I mean, your writing is beautiful. You're excavating these, you know, stories and um, investigating and 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 bringing landscapes and communities to life. And I just, your reporting in New Mexico has really been invaluable over the past couple of years. And I really appreciate that. And you know, what, what is next for you? <laughs> Thanks for the kind words. I feel like most of the times I'm just like a fly on the wall in New Mexico and still try to learn a lot of things and I enjoy um, talking to like the sources on the ground they always teach me something new and re like just renew my understanding of New Mexico and everything and yeah thank you so much for the for the can kind words and uh, I feel like uh, because like I'm still a Chinese citizen and uh, I always identify myself as a Chinese immigrant worker here in here in the United States or Chinese Chinese. <laughs> and I'm not I'm not Asian American, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, so like uh, I like to kind of explore the opportunities that I have in China a little bit because I feel like I've only worked full time in the United States and mostly in New Mexico. Um, I definitely feel like if I have that opportunity to, to work in China, at least I want to experience a little bit before I make a decision where in the future I'd like to live or work or base in or whatever, which side of, of the Pacific, maybe that's a larger question. Um, and I really feel that it's like a privilege to have first like the legal status and ability to work on both sides. Um, because I don't feel like, definitely like a lot of my sources, um, they didn't have a choice from back in the days. When they were in China, they're in China. And when they're in the United States, when they're in the, in the United States, they have to stay despite, you know, Chinese Exclusion Act or whatever. And a lot of the sources that I've talked to, they, they told me that, you know, your generation is like a, is like a revenge of Chinese exclusion act. I was like, yes, that's what I'm doing. I'm gonna do. But yeah, basically, I want to test. I want to try out myself in both sides and see what fits me the best, family wise, life wise, and uh, and career wise. 
but no matter where I go, I definitely feel like New Mexico will be a intricate or like, you know, a indispensable part of me because of the time I spend here. I, yeah, these days I constantly re re reflect on New Mexico and sometimes I just um, couldn't sleep. I have to be honest, <laughs> just thinking about, you know, the landscape and like the cuisine or like the, the food or, or like, you know, the wonderful people that I met who taught me a lot of things. Um, yeah, and that's where I'm gonna head it. Well, thanks for joining me this morning and thanks for all the great work you've done. I can't wait for you to come back and we can go hiking and hang out in, in real life. Yeah, I, I definitely look forward to that. And I have a feeling that New Mexico will draw me back at some point, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you and good luck. Thank you so much. And that interview originally happened on Facebook Live something we talk about a lot with New Mexico in focus, but it's something we do fairly regularly with our land as well. And so if you want to see those Facebook Lives when they happen or get notified of that, then you want to make sure you uh, like and follow the Our Land Facebook page or the Our Land YouTube page. We're working on some great ones coming up in the next few weeks as well. And it's a good time to remind you that you can follow our land and New Mexico in focus in a lot of different places on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for NM in focus or our land NM. And also you can keep track of everything on the show week to week uh, on our website, newmexicoinfocus.org. Also want to let you know if you don't know already, for those of you like me, cord cutters, maybe you're what's called over the top, so Roku or Amazon Fire, the PBS app is a terrific way to keep track and see all of the things we're doing as well. And the great part about that, of course, is it's all on demand when you want to watch or listen. So just wanted to make you all aware of that. Want to thank you as always for listening. I'm your host, Kevin McDonald executive producer here at NMPBS, and we hope you have a terrific week. We'll be back with you with more content again soon. Until then, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy.